0: Good morning. Good morning, a lot of attendees today, word was out. My name is Dave, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it is really a blessing to have the chance to offer you one of the most awkward, beautiful, challenging, and I believe most powerful message of the messages of this series. This morning, as has been mentioned, we're talking about sex, and uh, I, have to, I have to say, I believe today's message is critical. It's critical because there may not be an area where we need more guidance and encouragement and help and healing and hope and freedom as in the area that we are talking about today. And I want to start by acknowledging uh, that this is a deep and tender issue. There are a lot of stories in this room, there are a lot of struggles, there are a lot of hurts. In a room this size, there are undoubtedly many who have, and maybe still are, struggling with trauma and abuse and pain and rejection and insecurity from past things or even present things that you're experiencing. There are women here who have been abused by people, the very people who were supposed to protect you. And there are men who have been molested by someone they looked up to. Some of you are teens in this room, and you are already, at a young age, deep into sexual encounters, perhaps real or perhaps digital. Some of you aren't teens, and you're dealing with secret sexual addiction, and you feel shame about that, and you feel alone. Some of you are seniors, and age is presenting you with some new challenges in this area. Some of you are single, and you're wrestling with, will sex ever be part of my story? Others here are in marriages where things have grown cold and it does not feel safe to even talk about how you feel anymore. Some of you have been or are being cheated on, or maybe you're here this morning and you're the cheater, and all you can do is sit in silence and wonder, can I, can we ever recover from this? Others in this room wanted and fully intended and longed to be committed to someone for life, and yet... That is not how your story has gone. And then there are situations where a spouse has died or one of you has health issues, significant issues, or wrestles with stuff that feels completely out of your control, and you are here today, and if you're honest, you don't feel much hope. You see, one thing I we don't always understand is the, the vast amount of sexual brokenness we deal with as people, as human people, even in the church. And so while we won't cover everything today, I do want to cover some things. Specifically, we'll talk about the topic of sex and intimacy this morning because in our lives, we generally get a few different talks and a few different messages about sex. The first message is the biology talk. It's sometimes called The Birds and the Bees. And you may have gotten this one from your parents. Maybe they just gave you a book. Maybe they avoided it altogether and you had to rely on a friend or or a cousin or a health class at school. But that's talk one. It's The Birds and the Bees. Talk two is what I call the don't do it, it's bad talk. We get that right about our teenage years, sometimes again from mom and dad, or maybe even at church, where they laid on thick. And in conjunction with that talk, kind of overlaid with that one, followed up pretty quickly, is the talk the world gives us, our culture gives us. It's the everyone's doing it, it's great, and you should try it talk. That's the message you get from our world. But the talk I want to offer us this morning might be called At least I'm calling it. What God has to say about sex for singles and marrieds in a broken world. What God has to say about sex for singles and marrieds in a broken world. And to talk about this, we're going to walk through five verses in chapter 7 of a book called 1 Corinthians. And, And here's what I love about these verses. When Paul writes them, he's writing to, he's addressing people who are living in a world with just as much, if not more, sexual brokenness and confusion as ours. You see, sometimes I think we believe that all the sexual struggles of our world emerged in the 1970s in the sexual revolution that's when all the sexual tension began that's when the problems started before that people were just prim and proper and prudish all over the globe and this is not true what history tells us is something much different history and the scriptures both actually teach us that people have struggled with sex and sexual intimacy since the beginning of time since sin entered the world since the fall and when Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, he's writing to a city that sits on the little land bridge that connects northern Greece with southern Greece. You can see it there on the map. And because of this city's location, there was a lot of trade that ran through, especially in the first century when Paul writes. And, and Corinth has become a booming megacity where young entrepreneurs from around the region are flocking to make their fortunes. And with all this influx of young people and money, Corinth became a city that was filled with a ton, a ton of sexual energy and activity. There was actually a temple in Corinth that was devoted to the Greek goddess of love. Her name was Aphrodite. You can see the image of the ruins there on the screen. It was actually grand and spectacular in its day. And at its peak, right around this time, this temple would have been filled with thousands upon thousands of temple prostitutes. And what you would do, what was normal in Corinth, was you would go to the temple to worship and have sex with a prostitute as part of your worship, and then you would go home, just a normal day in church. In fact, the first, in the first century, Corinth was so associated with promiscuous sexual activity that the term Corinthianazo, which technically meant to act like a Corinthian, to act like someone from Corinth, it was used as a euphemism for promiscuous sex. So to act like a Corinthian, it was to be real, loose, sexually. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. Now, when Paul writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, something has changed. The gospel has come to Corinth and there is now a group of people who are trying together to follow Jesus in this city, in this culture where there are all these twisted and confusing sexual messages. And so now in the church, people are asking questions and they're very confused and they have all sorts of things to say about being single and being married and having sex. Things like, you know, it's not the physical that matters, it's the spiritual the spiritual is what really matters. So go ahead and do with wh- whatever you want with your body, married, single, it doesn't matter. Have sex with whoever you want. In fact, it's a good thing. It's a necessary thing. It's a worshipful thing to have sex. See, some people were letting what was happening with Aphrodite slide into the church. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, you had people saying, whoa, Clearly, the physical world is evil. We can see that all around us. And as followers of Jesus, what we should do is we should abstain from sex completely. We should have nothing to do with it, whether we are married or not. And as you can imagine, this was causing some tension amongst the married couples in the church. And so Paul writes, he writes into this crazy, confused culture and church, and he writes to clear some things up. He writes to answer their questions. He writes to give them a renewed vision for what God wants for them as Christ followers in their sexuality. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go through verse 5. And some of you have read these verses, and you're already thinking, oh good or oh no. And I'll just say this. I may may not say what you think I'm going to say. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 starting in verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about. Now for the questions you had. Now for the things that you're dealing with, right? Statement one from Paul. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. How many of you in here are like, that is a great, I love, I'm a bit, I agree with the Apostle, the Apostle Paul on this point. It is good for a man, I'm going to write that down, I might put that, I may stick that down on my husband's nightstand, right? You know, it is good for a man not to have I'm going to cut right to the chase here and tell you what Paul is addressing and what he's talking about. In this culture, like in our culture, there were people saying, this happens in our culture all the time, in order for your life to have meaning, to ultimately be satisfied and fulfilled, you must be having sex. And if you're not having sex, you are missing out on living the rich, full, hashtag, blessed life and existence that you were created and meant for. And the Corinthians write to Paul, and one of their questions is, Paul, is this true? Is sex this divine, essential thing for followers of Jesus? And what does Paul say? Right out of the gate, he says, no, he says, it's not. In fact, it's fine, not just not just fine, not just acceptable. it's good to live a life without sex. You can actually have a really good life and not have sex. So singles, I want to start with a message for you today because it's a message you don't often get in our world or even often in the church. Having sex is not the ultimate in your life, and you can have a rich, full, satisfied, wonderful, God-honoring existence without it. And so do not let this world tell you that you are not really living or that you are missing out on this huge thing and you're not really somebody because you're not having sex. That is not true. See, the Bible does this amazing thing. It holds Two things in tension. It has this very, very high view of sex. And it also says it is quite alright to live your entire life without ever engaging in it. And it holds both of those truths in tension. And, and singles, let me just say this to you. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying you shouldn't desire sex. I'm not minimizing the struggle that you face for sexual purity, especially in our culture, like in that culture. I'm simply reminding you of what Paul says here, because I believe it's true. You can live a good life and never have sex. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. You see how he gets real specific there? Don't you feel like that's a bit overkill? But it gives you a clue as to what's really going on in Corinth, right? He doesn't just say, you know, a woman should have sex with a husband and, uh, you know, or, and a husband with a wife. He's like, your own. Like, we need to be really, really clear with the Corinthian church, people. Paul's now obviously shifting gears. He's going to start to address married people and what sex should look like within the covenant of marriage. And what he's worried about here right away is this thing he calls sexual immorality. And for us, sexual immorality is such a a vague and relative term. I I hear this from young people all the time as they explore the scriptures looking for a loophole. (laughs) Right? What is sexual immorality? What's sexually immoral to you? Maybe isn't to me. Like, who's to say it's immoral or not? And so we have this idea that this is just sort of a vague subjective term, but the New Testament is actually very clear in its meaning of sexual immorality, what this term means. And here's what it means. Experiencing sexual intimacy with someone you're not married to experiencing sexual intimacy with someone you're not married to. This is why at another point in this letter, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Stay completely away, run away from experiencing sexual intimacy with anyone you're not married to because as much as the world wants to tell us that sex is just recreational fun between two consenting people, just biology and tissue and nerve endings, not that big of a deal, God, the one who actually created sex, says sex is a big deal. It's deeply significant. That it's not disconnected from your soul and emotions and the rest of your life. The Bible tells us what we all really know to be true deep in our hearts, that somehow in sex you are kind of glued and knit and joined on a soul level with another person, whether you want to be or not. And again, the reason for that is because that's what God designed sex to do. He designed it to bond and solidify the one flesh process of marriage. God designed sex to be bonding, and so sex is bonding. God was successful in his creation. Imagine that. And here's the deal. Science is now telling us the exact same thing. You see, our world loves to lean in and follow the guidance of science until science tells us something inconvenient. You talk to people, and so many people say this to me, and I was a physics math major in college, so they don't know that. They think I'm just a lowly, dumb pastor, and they'll say something to me like, well, I'm a scientist. I believe in science, and it's like, well, do you? Let's talk about what science has to say about sexual promiscuity, right? Because here's what neuroscience is now clearly and powerfully teaching us. When you have sex, there are these chemicals, these hormones that your body releases, and these chemicals are amazing. They are strong. They are powerful. Dopamine, oxytocin, vasopressin. Google these later if you don't believe me. Do some reading on the internet. I am not exaggerating. These chemicals that bond you physically with a person when you have sexual intimacy with them are more powerful than we could have ever imagined. And yet... The scriptures have been saying this for thousands of years. And again, the message is this, and I'm speaking specifically to you young people today. Don't let anything get in the way of the sexual bond you can have with your, with your current or future spouse. And actually, I'll reframe. That's not just a message for young people. Don't let anything get in the way of the sexual bond you can have with your current or future spouse. You see, the reason to fight sexual temptation is because God has something better for you. And the way to fight sexual temptation is believing that God has something better for you. See, the reason to fight it and the way to fight it are actually the same thing. You see, the way you fight your desire is not simply trying to repress your desires. It's to desire something more it's to have a vision for something greater than this lowly desire you see i can tell myself all day and all night dave don't want donuts don't like donuts dave you should not desire to eat donuts and yet the truth is the reality is i do want and like and desire to eat donuts because i'm a good person And so I might be able to fight and resist for a while. But at some point, temptation will win. However, when I determined to desire health more than donuts, when I have a vision for being healthy that is bigger than a momentary pleasure of eating donuts, now I have within me the power to overcome the temptation. In other words, fight desire with a bigger desire. Fight sexual temptation with a dream and a vision for the deeply connected marriage God longs for you to have. Now or someday. You see, some of you have been fighting desire by, with willpower and God says, no, fight your temptations and desires with a vision. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Now how many of you women out there, when you were young and you sat and you thought and you dreamed and you imagined about getting married someday and you thought about Mr. Wright, that guy who you hoped for, that husband, you thought to yourself, someday I can't wait to marry a man who will see me as a duty. <laughs> who will say to himself, like it's a lot of work. And I have to sort of muster up all feeling and passion, but it's my job to love you. I mean, no one dreams of this because duty is probably the most least romantic word in the dictionary. And yet, it's the word Paul chooses here. And I looked it up in the Greek and it actually means duty. (laughs) Obligation. Singles, back to you for just a moment. This verse should wake you up to a clearer picture of what marriage is really all about. (laughs) Because it's not always rainbows and care bears. It's not just passion and bliss and happiness and ease and effortless, effortless romance all the time. If you want to get married, you better be ready to go to work some days because it takes work to make this thing work. It takes work to make this thing work. It takes duty. Paul says, sometimes marriage is duty. It takes energy and effort and intentionality on multiple levels. Sometimes you've just got to work at it. Sometimes you've just got to do it. Sometimes you've got to work emotionally and relationally and spiritually and financially. And even in the bedroom, it takes work to make this thing work. Now, can I talk to you married couples for just a minute? Because I hope what I'm about to say is freeing for some of you. I hope this is freeing for those of you who are drowning under the weight of unrealistic expectations. Because some of you have expectations for your marriage, and specifically for the sexuality and the sex in your marriage that is unrealistic and it is killing you and you're, you're killing your spouse. They are drowning under the weight of your expectations. And so hear this because it's, it's, it's part of this verse. Sex does not always need to be passionate, romantic, clothes flying everywhere. Some of you think that's what it is and you're putting way too much pressure on yourself. You're watching too much TV. Sometimes you just need to put it on the calendar. You just need to schedule that thing. Sometimes you just need to say, hey, it's been too long and we just need to make this thing happen. Farm the kids out. Do whatever. Sometimes you just need to do it even when passion and feeling are almost nil. I didn't know you could do that. You can. One guy I heard this week said... Quote here. In an ironic twist, Paul in this passage is actually encouraging couples to have duty calls. <laughs> I offered that at the 9 o'clock service in in like that joke in full terror. I was like, <laughs> are they gonna laugh or throw stuff, you know? It was a courtesy chuckle. Um. You see, sometimes Paul says it's a call of duty. Now, again, I hope that sometimes it can be more than just duty. Sometimes I hope there can be passion and feeling. And often, what may start as duty can turn into desire. Because duty often births desire. See, in our world, we think everything has to start with desire. I have to want it. I have to feel it. Or else it's not authentic. It's not real. But Paul says, no 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 no, you know what grows in the in the soil of duty, desire. You just you just lean into duty and desire will show up at some point. Because this is how marriage works in lots of areas, not just sexually. When we do something out of duty, out of a covenant and a commitment, not just once or twice, but for a long, steady season, then enjoyment and passion and desire and feeling and trust and security and pleasure starts to grow. Now, let me pause for a second here and make a statement I hope is obvious to those of you in the room. Intimacy in marriage, including physical intimacy, including sexual intimacy, is not always easy. It's not automatic. It's not always something that just happens. And growing in this area of your relationship will involve vulnerability and honesty and humility. It'll require talking and listening and learning. It takes challenge and deep sensitivity for your spouse. Deep sensitivity for your spouse And so again, let me tell you how not to use this passage. This passage is not a weapon. This passage is not a trump card to try and spiritually leverage your spouse into being someone or doing something that you want them to do. Do not go to your spouse and say, Did you hear what Pastor Dave said in the sermon today? Again, I don't want any part of your arguments. Don't reference me. Because you notice what Paul is not saying here. He doesn't say, guys, make sure your wife is doing her duty. He doesn't say, ladies, make sure your husband is pulling his weight. He doesn't say, you you be be careful to just monitor them, keep tabs on them, what they are and aren't doing. He never says that. No, he just says, you just worry about you. You. And then he digs into that and he gets even a little more personal and he kind of fleshes this out for us a bit. Verse 4 The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. First off, friends, in, in a world where women were often seen as a husband's property, this level of mutuality was more radical than we can imagine. You see, the first half of that verse, all the men in Corinth were just saying, well, yeah, of course. But then Paul says, and, and in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. You see, this was a change. This was different. This is where followers of Jesus lived in a different way than in the world. There was this thing called mutual submission. Submission. Now, let me be real clear here. Paul is not promoting an attitude that says, now that we are married, I have the right to get all my sexual needs and desires met because I own your body. That's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying here is he's he's using covenant language. He's using the language of the marriage covenant and he's applying covenantal language to a specific area of marriage. And here's what he's saying to married folks. In the deepest way, give yourself, yield yourself, lay down your agenda and perspective, and submit your needs and your wants and your reservations and your fears and your struggles and your expectations to one another. In other words, he's saying, Husbands, Your primary concern in this matter is not for you or yourself. You are responsible for her. You're supposed to be concerned about her. You're supposed to care for her body, her physical needs and emotional needs and hurts and struggles and joys and passions and fears and insecurities and all the rest. That's what's foremost and most important to you. And wives, his to you. You see, this isn't about Ah, now I have control. This is about now I have, I'm responsible to care and to steward. And, and woven straight into this verse is, is, is an, an implicit, if not explicit, call for you to allow your spouse to do this, to allow your spouse to love you and care for you and be responsible for you, to allow them in to trust them with yourself, with the deepest parts of you, to say to your spouse, I have some needs and I have some wants and desires and hurts and fears and concerns, specifically in this area of sex, and I want you to know about those. I want to share those with you. But most importantly, I want you to share your things with me because you matter immensely to me and I want to understand and help and know you and serve you. Do you see how hard this is? Do you see how vulnerable this is? See, in the garden it says, the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. What a vision! What a vision for marriage. Some of you need to make this declaration in your heart, or maybe even with your mouth. Moving forward, I will fight against our sexual relationship being a place where you feel shame for who you are. In fact, I'm going to fight for our bedroom to be a place where there is freedom and honesty and openness and affirmation and safety. And I haven't done that well. Maybe this week, if you're married, you need to spend a few minutes and remind your spouse, just say it out loud because they need to hear it from you. You matter. Your past matters. Your drive matters. Your shyness matters. Your health condition matters. The stress you are feeling matters. Your life at work matters. That loss that you've experienced in your family matters. The abuse you experienced matters to me. Or or maybe just remind them that you understand or that you are trying to understand them. Maybe you need to write a note that says, in You can just put it at the top of the page. and You can say, Pastor Dave's homework. In our sex life, I understand that you, and then maybe there just needs to be some bullet points. You just need to make a list, and you need to write some things to let your spouse know that you see them, that you want to know them, that you're trying to understand them. Maybe you need to write some things like, I understand this is hard for you because of what happened. In our sex life, I understand this is hard for you because of that thing you went through. I understand you are still struggling with what I did or how I acted or that comment I made and I want to say again, I am deeply sorry. In our sex life, I understand that you've been hurt. I understand that you feel insecure. I understand that you feel frustrated sometimes. I understand that you struggle with your limitations or with my limitations. I understand that this is a big deal to you and an important way you connect. I understand that you need me to engage with you beyond just going through the motions. I see you. I hear you. I understand that for you, this part of our relationship is deeply connected to other parts of our relationship. I understand you, and I want to understand you more because Because to be understood, that is intimate. And it produces intimacy. You see, Paul is saying here, deeply care about your spouse. Their body belongs to you. Their personhood belongs to you. To care for, so care for them. Care about their struggles and fears and insecurities and dreams and passions and need needs. They are your priority, not you. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, he does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. That might be the most intimate verse in the entire scriptures. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self control. Paul's talking about here is the temptation we all face in relationships to slip back into a barter economy, to move from covenant back to contract, to start to say to our spouse or to start to take an attitude with our spouse or with our friends, you know, if you won't do this, then I won't do this. Since you aren't meeting my needs here, then I won't meet your needs there. And Paul is just calling us out of that again. He's saying, that's not God's will for your marriage. That's not who you are. That's not the covenant that you stood before the Lord and made. I'll do this if they'll do this, and if they won't do that, then I won't do. No. He's saying this will destroy your relationship. When you start to do that with each other emotionally and relationally and spiritually and financially and then it seeps into the bedroom and you start to act that way sexually and Paul says, no, you must not let this happen because it's too important and it's too significant and it's too personal and it's too powerful for you to play those kind of games with each other. Guys, can I talk to you for just a second? I'll speak to myself as well. Your wife's sexuality is more fragile than you know. And when you make cutting remarks and reject her or make comparisons with other women, it can damage her. And ladies, most of you know this, but I need to say it for some of you and for all the men in here who don't even know what's really going on inside of themselves because sometimes it's harder for us. When you reject him or blow him off, or continually don't seem interested, I know he seems tough, I know he laughs it off, I know he acts macho, and like he still thinks he's the man, but deep inside him, in ways he may not even be able to express to you, he is fragile, and he is hurt, and you can do some damage. see, Paul says, You are responsible for your spouse's body, for their person, for their deepest relational needs. And if you deprive them and don't take that responsibility seriously, you can really do some damage. This is matters. I love what Tim Keller says about this when he talks about the power of marriage. He says, we need to hold marriage in the kind of awe that it deserves. Marriage has the power to set the course of your life as a whole. What I mean by that is pretty simple. If your spouse says you're ugly and everyone else says you're beautiful, you feel ugly. But if your spouse says you're beautiful and everybody else says you're ugly, it doesn't matter. You feel beautiful. Why? Because marriage has that kind of power. Some of you don't understand the kind of power that you have in your own marriage. And he may be hiding it from you, she may be hiding it from you, they may seem calloused in distance, but I promise you, I promise you, you are having an impact, for better or worse. And so Paul says, so don't deprive each other, don't hold out on one another in any way, and certainly not in this way. Do not hold back on the responsibility and the opportunity that you have been given to build up your spouse and lift up your spouse and encourage your spouse and let them know that no matter what this world has to say to them, they are beautiful to you. Nothing feels better than that. When I know that Amy likes my shirt, I don't care if the rest of the staff makes fun of it all day. I'm wearing that thing again and again and again, and that explains some of my shirts, staff. You see, the heart of this passage really just comes to down to a simple statement. Don't neglect this part of your relationship. Don't just set it aside or avoid it or neglect it because it can be difficult and complicated and stressful and sometimes clunky and routine and awkward and even embarrassing. This is Paul saying don't lose sight of how God can and wants to use sexual intimacy in your marriage to bring you into new and deeper levels of oneness with your spouse. Maybe maybe you haven't talked about your physical relationship for a long time. Maybe there are past hurts and pains and you are tempted to think it's just easier to avoid this one. Maybe one of you has been caught up in some sort of sexual sin, maybe At various points, sex in your marriage has been used as a bargaining chip, something you have leveraged or have been leveraged against to get what you or they want in the marriage. Friends, I know this is an extremely personal and vulnerable and difficult and challenging part of marriage. I am not standing up here pretending that this is easy or shaming you for struggling. We're giving this sermon because we are, all of us, most of us, at some point struggling in the midst of our brokenness and humanity, but God says, keep on fighting, because it's worth it, it's worth the time, and energy, and effort, it's worth you as a couple discussing, and apologizing, and seeking personal healing, doing whatever it is that you need to do, so that this area of your relationship can move towards oneness, and togetherness, and intimacy, the kind that God longs for you to have, And I'm about to close, but I need to say a few more things. First of all, I know that a message like this lands in the middle of a lot of different stories and in a lot of different places. And that in this room, there's a lot of guilt and there's a lot of shame and there's regret and there's anger and frustration and some resentment. But I have to remind you of this. We serve a God of never-ending second chances. A God who loves a comeback story. A God who can redeem even the hardest and most difficult situations. A God who can redeem even the hardest and most difficult situations. There is grace for you today. Amazing grace. Grace in the places where you have failed. Grace to help you forgive. Grace to help you move towards the person God longs for you to be, no matter what the circumstance you're in. I was talking to Pastor Bethany this week, just asking her a few of her thoughts on this sermon, because I am aware that I am a man preaching this sermon, and that I can only preach this sermon as a man, and from my perspective. And so I just said, hey, as our women's pastor, could you just... Offer me some thoughts, some things that you'd want to say. And and Bethany had so much to say because she is wise and kind and in touch with women in our church. But the thing that she most wanted to say, that maybe the, the thing that just kept bubbling out of her was this. To those who feel hopeless or like too much damage has been done, I just want to say, our God has the power to reverse the irreversible. Our God has the power to reverse the irreversible. We believe that here. That's why we come. That's why we sing. That's why we worship. It's, it's all throughout the scriptures. Comeback stories. Another second chance. Another second chance. God doing something great out of something awful. It's, it's all through the stories of the people in this church. And to think that God couldn't do something amazing just because it's about sex, that's way too short, short-sighted for our God. Our God has the power to reverse the irreversible. And when we remember that, friends. We remember that when we come to these tables. You see, these are, this is the moment at the end of our service when we come to the table and we remember that our God is bigger than all the stuff that we're facing. He's bigger even than sin and death, the ultimate thing in this world. He defeated it. He crushed it. He overthrew it. And so he can even take that sexual struggle, that intimacy struggle, that relationship, that marriage struggle that you're in, and he can overcome that. Does that mean everything will go just the way you want it to? No, because God's not a genie in the bottle, but he'll take that tough situation and he will work it for his glory and for your good. That is his promise, and that's not just preaching. That's truth. And we come to this table to remember that truth. That our God is bigger than sin and death and also than our sexual struggles and challenges. So come this morning. I'm going to pray and then come to the table with whatever's in your life and on your heart and bring it to him and ask him, the one who defeated death, to do that forgiving, redeeming, transforming, empowering work that he longs to do in you through his son, through the death and resurrection of his son. That struggle Is nothing for your God. Let Him remind you of that today. Let Him give you hope today. Let Him offer you grace today for wherever you need it. So I'm going to pray and then you can come and take the elements back to your seat and receive them when you're ready. Father, this morning I am praying for the hearts of the people in this room and for even those who will listen online that your spirit would be softening and has been softening and that the exact words of challenge, encouragement, hope, truth, affirmation, would land in just the right place, Lord, and begin to grow. Help us to hear your voice today. Help us to understand your vision. Give us a picture of where we need to move and where we need to act and where we need to let grace fuel us to not just be forgiven, but to become the people you long for us to be in our relationships in our marriages, in our singleness. We need you for that, Lord. We need you today. We love you. And we pray all these things in the name of your son. Amen.